part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. As you're seated this morning, you can open your Bibles to Mark 14. We actually start a new series that will take us all the way through Easter, up to Easter. And uh, basically, we're going to stay in Mark. And uh, all four Gospels speak of Christ's death and his resurrection. Every one of them will give us some type of an account about the life of Christ or the, uh, his crucifixion and his resurrection. And, and yet, you know, they all have uh, different places where you can say, man, I like this part of Luke and I like this part of John. But Mark really does this incredible job of just showing us and in kind of great detail some of the things that happened in that last week. And so this morning we're going to start with, uh, actually we'll be starting on the Thursday night. That is not our Thursday night. Thursday night, the night before Christ on Friday goes to the cross. And so uh, in the next three to four weeks as we get to Easter and then the resurrection, we're really going to be looking at what happened in those hours of Thursday, Thursday night, Friday. Uh, We are going to have a Good Friday service in our church on Good Friday here. And it would be a, a kind of a really different service. Uh, I won't be preaching. It will be scripture and singing and prayer. I, I will tell you right up front, it's kind of a dark service, not just dark, you know, outside. But it's kind of a dark service because it's the heaviness of the cross. So that when Sunday, Resurrection Sunday comes, there's just this joy because here's where we were and here's where Christ has taken us. And so we'll get you more details about that. But that will be on Good Friday here And uh, we'll look forward to that. Mark chapter 14. Has anybody ever broken a promise to you? Instantly we say yes. You know, it may be as trivial as something that, uh, you know, we were talking about in in life group this morning. So I said, okay, I'll I'll see you at 8. And then it's 8.17 before they come. You know, and it's something trivial. You know, there wasn't any hard feelings. It wasn't like, okay... I just did those 17 minutes because I knew you were suffering there waiting for me. You know, it wasn't ill intent. It wasn't anything like that. It was just one of those things that happened. They got stuck in traffic, ran out of gas, whatever it is, but they broke a promise. They said, I'll see you at 8, something so innocent, but they weren't there till much later. Other times in life, we see that there is a lot of intention. There is a lot of hurt that was purposely done, or a choice was made by somebody who made you a promise, and all of a sudden they break that promise. We go back in life and we begin to see that our lives really do reflect very instantly. And I think I would have no trouble this morning getting everybody to agree that we live in a world of broken promises. Sometimes those very generic and simple ones. Other times the ones that literally can take your heart and try to rip it in two. Let me ask you another question. Have you ever broken a promise? You know, again, maybe the, the very innocent kind. I, I can remember life in ministry or I would tell our girls, okay, we're going to go do this next Saturday and maybe Six Flags or something like that. And then all of a sudden something come up, a funeral or some, a situation in the church that those people needed care. And it wasn't that you were picking those people over your own family, but there was a sense of urgency and a sense of ministry kind of comes with that responsibility. There was no evil intention. It's like, oh, I'm just going to put Six Flags out there and then yank it back and just see how they react. It wasn't that. It was innocent. It was circumstances. And yet other times that maybe even with some malice and heart that you made a decision when you were at that crossroads. Here's the promise I made. But this one would give me more pleasure. And so I'm going to go this direction. 
And while your intention was not to hurt that person, in the end, you knew that it would bring great, great hurt to that person because it's a broken promise. This morning, we're going to look at how we live in a world of broken promises. One last question before we get into Mark chapter 14. Have you ever made a promise to God that you eventually broke? You know, one of those times you said, you know, Lord, if you just get me out of this situation, I mean, one of those desperate SOS kind of prayers, God, if you just get me out of this, I promise I'll never do it again. Only a month, two months, three months, maybe even a year later, you did it again. Or maybe that time that you said, okay, God, if you help me this time, I'll never miss church for the rest of my life. Anybody ever did that? And yet, you know, all of a sudden, after that heavy commitment, then there was a time that you found yourself maybe becoming distant from that commitment. Or maybe sometimes it was really for the purpose of someone else. God, if you heal my dad, if you heal my mom, if you heal my child, then I will be faithful to you all the rest of my eyes. That, that, really, the intention of the heart was, was sincere. You were purposeful, and you did it with great sincerity. And yet, as you made this promise, maybe you haven't been as faithful as you had promised to be. Guys, we make promises. We are the, the recipients of people who have broken their promise. We have broken promises, and we've even broken promises sometimes to God. And so this morning we're going to look at kind of that foundation because we see that this world is a world of broken promises and uh, a world that over-promises and under-delivers. If you have any doubt whatsoever, if you haven't been able to relate to those first three questions, think politics. Okay? The guy that you voted for, the guy you voted for, you put him in office and you're going, okay, where's our vote in Congress? Where's this representation? Over-promise, under-deliver. That's the world that we live in. It's rare to find somebody who truly will keep their word. Somebody who says, okay, we don't even have to sign a contract because our, my word is our bond. We can shake on it. In my dad's era, that's the, what dad taught me. Yeah, if you want a piece of paper so that you can file it for legal purposes, yeah. But the minute that we shook hands, that was a binding contract. Do you feel like we still live in that world? And some would say, well, that's just, you know, the time. But I promise you, even if you went back a couple generations, there were still those people out there. My dad used to call them shysters. You know, and I I don't know if that's an offensive term to to, to somebody here. But he said, you know, those people just, they were ready to take advantage of you. And we know that the world is filled with that. But other times you can have the best of intentions. And yet whatever, that failure of your ability to be able to follow up and keep that commitment. Well, this morning as we open up to Mark chapter 4, Mark is one of the four Gospels that tell us about the life of Christ. We're going to go to Mark chapter 14. It's in the New Testament. If you're kind of not real familiar with the Bible, it'd be kind of near the end. As we get into the New Testament, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the second Gospel. Mark is the shortest of all the Gospels, and and it tells us, Mark is kind of in this rapid pace mode. And uh, so for people who have intention deficiencies like myself, That's why I like this gospel. It moves. It just kind of travels. It doesn't linger. And it gets kind of straight to the point. And as I said before, this is the Thursday night in the life of Christ before he goes to the cross on Friday. And if you've ever done a study on that Passion Week and what happened that last week, it's really intriguing. Because you find out, how could all these different events 
happen in such a short span of time. There's a lot that happens on Thursday. In fact, by the time we open up to this, there's things like uh, Christ has already instituted the Lord's Supper. You remember, he got the disciples together and they met in the upper room and they thought they were gathering for Passover, which would have been very familiar with them with the Jewish background. And yet he institutes a new way of doing it. It's what we call today the Lord's Supper. When he talks about, hey, this bread, this is my body, this, this wine, this is my blood. So this has already happened. He's already confronted Judas, and Judas has already left. And so now we are down to 11 disciples. He's washed their feet, and uh, they're headed now from that upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's not that long. If you've ever been to the, to the uh, Holy Land, it's kind of a short walk. It wouldn't take you but maybe about three or four minutes to go from the, the Mount of Olives and the, that general area, the upper room, over to the Garden of Gethsemane. And when this happens, it's kind of in that five, ten-minute walk. They're walking along, and Jesus says, all of you are going to fall away from me. All of you are going to fall away. Look what it says, Mark 14, starting with verse 26. Starts off in that upper room. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now we're going to stay on those verses, because these are really, really foundational verses for the next four weeks. What we see is Christ comes out, they're leaving, they sing a hymn, they're traveling now to the Garden of Gethsemane where he's going to pray. Remember his prayer? That if there's a way, let this cup pass from me, but, but not my will, but thy will be done. And he begins to sweat drops of blood in the garden. All that's about to happen. Before it happens, though, he has this conversation with the 11 remaining disciples. And he says there three things, first, or two things. He says, first of all, that you're going to fall away. Now, he didn't have this emotion. He didn't, you know, guys, I'm kind of feeling lonely, kind of feeling bad. I need some encouragement. Y'all haven't been real encouraging to me lately, and so uh, I'm kind of have this emotion, this feeling that you're going to let me down. That's not what he's saying in verse 27. He quotes Old Testament prophecy from Zechariah. Truth. Something that God said in the Old Testament that was going to happen in the New Testament. So he's not just saying, okay, I have this feeling that you're going to abandon me. No, he quotes scripture from Zechariah 13, 7. And he says, guys, it is written that you're going to fall away from me. But then look what happens in verse 28. He makes them a promise. Actually, he makes two promises. First promise, what? I'm going to be raised up. He said, you're going to see me die in the next couple of days? He's already told them that. They try to resist it. But he says, look, I, I make a promise to you. I will rise again. But there's a second promise that he makes at the end of verse 28. And what is that? Go ahead and say it. So, I will meet you in Galilee. I will go before you in Galilee. Uh, eventually, in a matter of days... You will see me again. Not only will I be alive, but I will be with you in Galilee. Now, I want you to remember that because that's the foundation of the whole next four weeks. Okay? And in our attempt to get all to the good stuff, you know, all the interesting stuff of the resurrection, we skip over some of these most important verses. 
Isn't that kind of how it is? Have you ever started a book, like chapter 4 or 5, or maybe the end? Or, you know, the very last page so you can kind of know how it finishes? Well, sometimes, even with the Scripture, we're tempted to do that. We kind of become familiar with the story, so we go to those high points or those highlights. I want you to understand that we could easily go past verse 28, and yet it is so foundational to the story of Easter, guys, of resurrection, of a God who makes you personal promises. Is he trustworthy or not? Christ makes two promises here. Number one, I will rise up. Number two, I will gather with you again in Galilee. This is huge, guys. Because it's the two things that they're going to doubt in the next couple of days. When they begin to see Christ go before the false trials, when they begin to see him nailed to a tree, when they see him die and placed in a grave, what do you think is going through their mind? Number one, is he going to rise? Number two, will we ever see him again? We see that in the lives, in the minds, in the hearts of all the disciples. It's the reality of somebody that you know that makes you this very foundational promise. I'll go here. I'll do this. And they make this promise from their heart. Do they have that ability to keep it out? I I can imagine that there are many men and women during wartime that made a promise as they sat there before they shipped out. I'll be back. I promise you there was a whole bunch of men and women over all the wars of our nation's history. World War I, World War II, Vietnam War, all this. I'm going to be faithful and I will be back. I'll be back, sweetheart. I'll, I'll be back. And some of those, they had the best of intentions, and yet, even with the best of intentions, they weren't able to fulfill that. Killed in service, died for their country, for for your freedom, for mine. It wasn't that they decided to go another route. It's just they weren't able to be in control. Christ makes a very important thing. Guys, I will rise from the dead, and I will see you in Galilee. And I want you for the next four weeks to hold on to that promise that he makes. So that on Resurrection Sunday we can come back. Because at the end of the Mark, what, at the end of the Gospel of Mark, guess what it says. I'll, I'll go ahead and do the spoiler alert now. He's alive again and he meets them in Galilee. Go, go, go think. This is amazing, guys. This isn't trivial. This isn't small. It's the very foundation of our faith and our belief. That Christ is a promise keeper in a world of of promise breakers. He knows that they're going to fall away. He knows that they will fail him. They know he knows already that uh, that Peter's going to deny him. And yet, what is the instantaneous thing? I mean, if somebody comes up to you and, and they make this promise, and then they say that you're going to do something bad, like, well, I just know that you're going to abandon me. What's the first thing that you think comes out of our kind of Will, not me. Him, her, I don't know. I've always, they've always been kind of wishy-washy, but not me. And that's exactly what happens in verse 29. Here he makes these two promises. I will rise up. I will be, uh, go before you in Galilee. And he's just told them that they're going to fall away. He's quoted scripture. It is Old Testament prophecy. It's true. And yet look at Peter's response to Christ. Peter said to him, verse 29, even though they all fall away, I will not. How many of you that you know enough about Peter are going, that sounds like Peter? Yeah. That's kind of his mentality. Now, now here's the question. 
on a scale of 1 to 10, if you had to pick a number of how sincere you believe Peter is, you know the rest of the story. You, you know that he falls away. But at this point, when he makes this declaration, even if the rest fall away, I will not. How sincere do you think he is? Ten being the highest, one being the lowest. Okay, some eights. Ten, a lot of tens. I, I believe a ten. I really believe that with all my heart that he's at least an eight or nine or a ten. And when he says this, this is just in passing. It's a, well, I don't know about them, but I'm going to really try hard. No, I think he is passionate. Even though they all fall away, I will not. And I think you could give him a 10 in earnestness and believe that he was sincere. But in the hours to come, we're going to find out that he was a promise breaker. I mean, look how Jesus responds to Peter in Peter's response. Look at verse 30. And Jesus said to him, that is said to Peter, truly, I tell you. Now, if you have the King James, I grew up in the King James. This is where it used to say, verily. And if it really was really talking about truth, verily, verily, right? Verily, verily, I say to you. In other words, this is not just truth. This is truth, truth. So if you have the King James, it still says, verily. But if you have a modern translation or something, it's going to say something like this. Truly. I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. So Christ has not just told Peter once, but he's now told him twice. Jesus says, this is truly going to happen. That this is really going to happen, Peter. But look at Peter's response in verse 31. But he said, what? Emphatically. How do you say something emphatically? If you're, if you're a husband or a wife, if you're a spouse here today, you know what the word emphatically means. Honey, I, I was thinking about getting you that vacuum cleaner for your birthday. To which she says emphatically, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> I would think of another gift maybe. You know what emphatically is. You've heard it from your children. <laughs> They've been emphatic, and then they went to time out right after they were emphatic. But you know, emphatically, you know this. And Jesus says to him, or Peter says back to Jesus emphatically. Now, again, remember, he's, he's talking to God here. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is God. And so Peter has this audacity. I mean, can you imagine that you've heard it from Scripture, you've heard it from prophecy, Zechariah, that all are going to fall away. Now Jesus tells you personally, he goes from the 11 that are left and he gets down because Peter says, even if the others will fall away, I won't. Peter, one-on-one now with Jesus, Jesus says, no, here's even the details. By tonight, you're going to deny me three times. Not once, not twice, three times before the rooster crows twice, Peter. I mean, how more pointed, how much more detail can you get? And yet look at Peter's response again. He said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Again, scale of one to ten. First he said, I'm not going to deny you. Now he says, I will even be willing to die for you. How many of you, on the, on the merit of sincerity, do you think that Peter really sincerely meant that? That every fiber of his being thought that he could go to the death, his own personal death, for Jesus, what would you give Peter here? Now, let me talk you into it. But really, in your mind, how sincere do you think he is? One to ten. 
I do too. I've heard a lot of tens. I, I think he was a ten. Guys, this should really kind of scare us a little bit. It should be a little frightening that somebody with total sincerity, a ten on sincerity, could still fall away like this. Because you know the one thing that sometimes we use as an excuse for our lack of faithfulness? Well, that's not what I meant. Or, you know, I was sincere. Or I, I really wanted to do this. I get that, guys. I get that. I've hurt my wife before. She's, she's hurt me before. Not, not intentionally. It wasn't one of those things, hmm, if I do this, this will really hurt her. Just in the pride, just in the basis of life, you're coming and you're going, you're this and that, and you're sharing life. And those little things, they all of a sudden can kind of be kind of pointed and brings a little bit of hurt. Was that her desire? Was that my desire? No. And, but it proves one thing. We are fallen people in a broken world. Peter, I believe, was sincere, and yet he's a fallen person in a broken world, guys. And and don't let the merit of sincerity sometimes be the merit of your Christianity. Because here's what we see. Uh, Peter makes his promise. I not only will stand for you, not only will I not deny you, but I will die for you, Jesus. Here's his promise. And he bases it on three things, guys, and you can write this down if you want to. Number one, he based it on his own superiority. What I mean by that, what did he say? Hey, even if the others cave, I'm not. In other words, he looked at those 11 that were left, he being one of those 11. And he says, look, when it comes to those other guys, I always was kind of wishy, you know, I always thought Matthew was kind of skeptical there, you know. I always thought, you know, this guy, he's kind of young. I've never seen really great faith in him. He throws kind of everybody else under the bus except for himself. In fact, he's driving the bus. And he says, look, and I don't know that this was truly this superiority complex like I am so much better than them. Just he said, look, I... I know that people can cave. I know that everybody doesn't live out to the full intention, every promise that they make. But I am sincere, and I, I just think that I can keep it better than these other guys. That even though the others will fall away, he would not. Now, let me make it personal. Have you ever looked at somebody else's sin and said, man, I would never do that? Save the grace of God, guys. Save the grace of God. There go I. If you ever forget that, you will have a judgmental heart. You will not have the heart and the mind of Christ. Because except for God's grace, all of us could do the most unthinkable thing. And yet it's natural. Is this not natural of how we react? Oh my goodness, did you hear what so-and-so did? I would never do that to my kids. I would never do that to my family. Except for the grace of God. In his salvation, there go I. We don't have to agree with it. We don't have to minimize the sin. Guys, don't think that you're beyond sin because, you know, well, I was just taught better. Hopefully you were taught better. And yet one of the first things that can help us in that slide right into sin and disobedience to God is this feeling of superiority. How many times have we been quick to point out somebody else's sin only to find ourselves deeply immersed in our own sin? It was just a different sin. I mean, I I think Jesus even talked about that one time. 
Hey, you go over to get the speck out of somebody else's eye and you've got this honking two by four in your own eye? I mean, why would he tell that story if this was not the propensity of human man, of humankind? So the first thing that Peter does is, is kind of think, okay, you know, I just don't think, I think I'm, you know, a little bit better than these guys. He doesn't come out and say that, but basically he fails to neglect that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's a second thing. That's what we talked about before. He was counting on his sincerity. And that is a very believable lie. There have been many things that you and I have done in our lives, and we sincerely really kind of didn't want to do them, but in that frail moment, maybe we just gave in, and maybe we made that choice that, that brought sin into our lives. But here he's thinking, okay, I'm just sincere enough that not only will I not fail you and I will not deny you, but, but Jesus, I'll die for you. I think he meant it. And there was a third thing. It's going to sound like the first one, but it's actually something uh, a little bit different, and that is he was counting on his own strength. Peter was a strong man. He had a strong personality. He came from a uh, kind of a, a very physical background. What was Peter? What was his life before Christ? Fisherman. And I don't know that too many fishermen were, you know, 120 pounds wet. You know, it doesn't mean that you, you couldn't be small and do that. But uh, do you see Peter as this small guy? Or do you see him as kind of, you know, this guy, when everybody else couldn't lift the fish, you know, the net back into the thing, that Peter goes, get out of the way. I, that's, I mean, we're not told that. We're not given a physical description of Peter. And the Bible, I just think Peter's one of those guys that will push the other guy out of the way and says, let me get this. If you had a jar in the kitchen that needed to be opened, you would walk past me and you'd go, Peter, can you open this for me? Okay? This is who Peter is. But not just in a physical way. Would you say that he's pretty strong in personality? There's not too many times that we see Peter going, you know, I'm not so sure about that. Let me think and pray about that. That is not Peter. Peter, long before he thinks and long before he prays, a subject comes up and Peter goes, this is how I feel about it. He's got a strong personality. He's counting on his own strength to be able to navigate this when Christ was able to, was able to tell him point blank, this is what's going to happen. I tell you prophetically, I tell you personally, before the end of the night, you're going to deny me three times. Many of you know the rest of the story. Uh, skip down a little bit. Jeff may be using some of this next week in his sermon. Some of this, so I don't want to take it all, but I, I do want to connect two dots here, if that's okay, Jeff, and then you can come back and really play with it because he may not go with this specific verse. Look down at verse 66 through 68 of Mark 14. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, and this is after Jesus has been arrested, they've taken him off. All the disciples have scattered by this point, and they're just all over the place. Verse 66, and as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. We were talking about this a little bit in, in Sunday school class this morning. Think about who this young girl is. She's a girl. 
in that society, men had status, women not the same status. She was young. In that society, they favored the old and not the young till you got of age. And she was a servant. Do you think that maybe there's a purpose that this, who would be really kind of, as far as societal pressures upon you, that this is one of the lowest of the lows? Please don't hear that offensively against this girl. But out of all the ones that would pressure you to do something, this is probably the lowest of the lows. This is a little girl. I think you were with the Nazarene. I don't even know what you're talking about. Sincerity, 10. Intention, 10. Delivery, 0. And that's me. And if you're really honest, that's you. That's you. Not that we always get a zero, not that we're never faithful, but we all have that potential, guys. We have all been there. We bring nothing to Christ to bring favor to us. This is who we are. People with great intentions speak loud words of favor to God. And then when it's right there on there, we're sinners in need of a Savior. This is our story. It's not just Peter's story. But here's the good news. This is our Savior and not just Peter's Savior. Amen? And in a world of broken promises that I've made one to another, that people have broken my heart with their broken promises? I mean, you know my story, guys. I'll share with you before. My mom, you know, after my parents divorced, I go to live with my dad for four years. Oh, you didn't get that birthday card? I sent it. Oh, you didn't get that Christmas card? I sent it. For four years, nothing. The kid just wanting to hear from his mom. I don't want the gifts. I want to hear from my mom. But that's me. Intentionally, not always. Purposely, not really to hurt. This is our human dilemma. We are in need of a Savior. Because not only do we live in a world of promise breakers, we are promise breakers ourselves. There's a, a song, uh, Casting Crowns, East to West. I think we've sung it several times here. And, and I love one of the lines. It says, I can't live by what I feel but by the truth your word reveals. I'm not holding on to you, but you're holding on to me. I love that part of the song. I love the whole song, but I, I love it because it paints this picture that so many times if I let my own emotions, if I let my own feelings get in the way, I think I'm holding on to God for dear life, for dear spiritual life. Guys, please get that picture out of your mind that within, without mighty God and his grasp upon you, all of us would be gone. All of us would be gone. It is not our ability, our sincerity, our strength, and our ability to hold on to him, but what he has finished in Jesus Christ holds on to us. And that's good news. That's good news, guys. As promise breakers, our hope is not in our ability to keep our promises. I've made some really sincere promises to God, and I've kept many of those promises. 
And I say that, please don't hear any kind of bragging or anything, but I haven't kept all those promises. And so if, if my salvation is going to be based on my ability to accomplish for God or agree and do these things for God, then what if I just come up that one short? What if I kept 99 promises and yet one promise I broke? He's a holy God. And, and, and guys, when it comes to our sin, he doesn't say, well, you know, there's 99 pretty good things, but this one thing, no. That one thing. And I doubt any of us are in the 99 to 1. Would you agree that we're probably in the 80 to 20, if not the 50 to 50, if not the 20 to 80? (laughs) But even if we were the 99 to 1, one of the best books I've ever read, Andy Stanley, How Good is Good Enough. Short little book. You can read it in an hour and a half. Great, great book. Because it asks that basic question. How good is good enough? If you're going to do it on your own sincerity, your own strength, your own ability, how good is good enough? You know the answer? Let's go ahead and cut to the end. Perfection. So if you've messed up even one time, even with the best of intentions, we stand in need of a holy God. So this morning I have this question as we end. What are you trusting in this morning? Your superiority over other people? Because we will always be able to find people that are, if you want to say, bigger sinners than we are. Is that really a challenge in this world? I mean, it's, it's kind of like a Sunday afternoon drive. As you can go to the fanciest neighborhood and come back and look at your house and go, man, we live in a little shack. Or you can go to the most deplorable, the most, um, you know, the, the, the most uh, needy of all people and come back and say, man, we live in a palace. You can change your perspective based on what you allow into your vision. And so if your superiority, if that's what you're trusting this morning, so I'm not, at least I'm not as bad as Bobby. I've heard Jeff's story, and I know I'm not as bad as Jeff. <laughs> but you're always going to be able to find that. Do you want to be in line right after Billy Graham? Probably not. Are you trusting in your sincerity? And this is the one I think really does get a lot of us, because in our hearts... I never wake up with the intention to sin. I never wake up in the morning going, you know, I just really want to disappoint God. I just really want to tick him off today. I never do that. My intention every morning is to wake up and to serve God. And yet I fail miserably every single day. You probably do too in some different ways. So sincerity is in it. And our own abilities and our strength, all those things will always fail. Just ask Peter. And so this morning, Christ invites us to trust in him and him alone. And that's what we're going to do in this four-week journey. Jeff next week will take you, and he's looking at some different scriptures right now. And we see Christ mocked. We see false trials. We see all these things that at any point in time, Jesus could have said, enough, enough. I'm out of here. On the cross, as he's sitting there, and as they're still mocking him on the cross, he could have... One thought, guys, one thought. And a myriad of angels come down and lay this world dead. And yet, what do we see on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. This is an amazing Savior. This is an amazing God that we serve. And in this whole world of broken promises, we have one promise caper, and his name is Christ Jesus, guys. And he will keep his promise to you. 1925, a man by the name of Thomas Chisholm wrote a song that is familiar to a lot. Uh, 
became a Christian at age of 27. He entered into the ministry at age 36. was able to go out and minister for an, uh, a year, and then his health failed. And uh, because of that, he was not able to pastor anymore. So here he's get called into the ministry at 36. He has to quit by 37 because of just all these ailments that he had in his life. And uh, in a way, he kind of kept on feeling like, I wanted to do more for God. I wanted to do more for God. And he was sincere. And yet he realized that it wasn't what he could do for God, but what God had already done for him. And he penned these words. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with ten thousands beside. Not what you can do for him. I'm not minimizing that we live righteous and dedicated lives to the cause of Christ. Just don't count on that for your rightness with the Holy God. All of our rightness is found in one person, a promise keeper by the name of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you. And Father, there are many here today that they have scars and hurts in their lives because of broken promises. A mom or a dad, a husband or a wife, a son or a daughter, a brother or a sister who made promises of the heart and then failed to keep them. And so, Father, it makes us a little tentative. It makes us skeptical when we begin to read in your word about all these promises that you've given to us, that even you, Father, we begin to to act more and think more like the world that we live in rather than you who created this world. And so, Father, in this journey to the cross and to an empty tomb over the next four weeks, Father, I pray that you would show us that there is a promise keeper amidst a world of promise breakers. Father, show us our need. Father, show us that even though we are, uh, think that sometimes we're stronger than others, and, and Father, our intentions, our sincerity is on a high level. Father, show us that our salvation is not based upon our sincerity, but Father, the finished work of your Son. Father, we love you today, and we come to you to proclaim your greatness and your faithfulness. As we pray all this in the name of the one that made it possible, Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.